0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, good morning, uh, kiddos. I believe we have Elevate and EGC this morning. So uh, kindergarten through second grade can go to elevate out this way, and uh, elementary, third, fourth, and fifth can follow Miss Lisa back out this way. Everybody else can stay in here. Uh, I did want to um, give you an update real quick. Uh, Throughout the month of September, we had a church planting offering, uh, and that will be going to help plant the refuge church up in um cadillac michigan and uh we will be we raised over four thousand dollars just over four thousand dollars so that's awesome yeah um so you are finding that out before eric freeman is finding that out and if somebody could remind me this week to call eric freeman and let him know uh that would be great I am glad you're here, um, and it's good to be here and be together. We're going to be in 1 John again this morning, and so what we're going to we're going to be doing the same passages that we did last week, uh, with just a different angle. So let me um, if uh, if let me read this for us. Uh, You can follow along in your Bibles uh, or uh, up on the screen, and we will uh, read this together. This is John writing to uh, the church in Ephesus, and it, it's kind of in the second generation here. And um, this is what he writes. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Real quick, we, he's talking about the disciples, him, its talking about Jesus, you, the church. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him... If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, There will be some uh, illustrations of plenty, so we're just going to kind of jump right into this. Uh, Again, John is writing this to the church in Ephesus. This is kind of the second generation of this church. The last time Paul, who helped establish this church, the last time he gathered with these disciples, or with the elders of this church, Paul encourages them, loves them, they weep. Basically, Paul tells them, this is the last time I'm gonna see you, but he also gives them a warning that um, uh, there is going to be trouble ahead. This is, you're seeing Jesus move now, but you will be tempted to fit this back into the worldview that you had. This is changing, this can change you, but if we're not fully changed, we're going to slip this back into what we know and what's familiar. And so there's, there's going to be trouble ahead. And sure enough, there's trouble ahead. And so when John is writing this, what we can gather that some of the opponents uh, of John and of the gospel, what's, what's, uh, we can gather some of the uh, false teaching that's, that's happening uh, in this introduction and throughout the first chapter. There are some fundamental things about God, about sin, about ourselves that are being taught uh, that are not in line with who Jesus is, what, who Je- what Jesus has accomplished, uh, what that means for those who follow him, what that means for humans, what that means for all humanity. And so last week we looked at the idea of sin, and one of the dangerous teachings that has made its way around the church was the idea that we could be without sin. And there are a couple of ways to do that. And let me just tell you right now, if you walked out of last week and was like, oh, so he's just saying we can go ahead and sin. No, no no, no. Now, I'm not saying that like people going, cool. I'm saying that from people going, heresy. We like, we get quick on attacking. So you're just saying we can go sin wherever we want. No, no. You're hearing what you want to hear. You're not hearing what I said. I'm getting a little defensive here. Nobody said that. Nobody even said that. Uh, People say that, and then I get defensive. So I'm, this is not anything, like I didn't get an email. I'm just making that just making that clear. But when we confess over and over and over and over again, if we have to confess the same thing, it's because we trust Jesus anew and anew and anew and anew. And it's not, this is not like the way the gospel works is a lifetime of rooting this out of us. It is often not like, boom, you're done, and now you don't ever have to worry about it again. In fact, that is a challenge for the first century church. And you had two different ways that this was being argued. You had pagans, Greeks, those coming from a more Gnostic uh, worldview, that had kind of bent the gospel back to Jesus is great, he's the Savior, and this is about the spiritual realm. And we are becoming spiritual. But our physical bodies, they are dirty, they are never part of this, and really what you do with your physical body doesn't really matter. You can neglect it, or you can indulge it. There were different views on that. But what's important, what's important is that you're spiritual, right? So the, 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 the person that says, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Um, that is kind of this, our physical bodies don't matter. And what, what the gospel tells us, what Jesus tells us is we are whole beings. In fact, Christians, when Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't just save our souls. He saves our whole person. Our bodies matter. The material world matters. Jesus became flesh. The material world matters. And therefore, our body, our mind, our emotions, all of that stuff, all of it is spiritual. Okay? Does that make sense? So, Gnostics would separate the spiritual realm from the physical realm, and it really didn't matter. And that was a way of kind of minimizing sin. What's important is what you do in the spiritual realm and these experiences— physical body, that's not very important. So we would minimize sin. The other side of this uh, came more from, um, I, I may have jumped way ahead here in my notes, so it's all right. Um, yeah, I did. Okay. So for the other side, which was more of the, more of the Jewish battle, the Jewish battle had to do with the law. And the law was when you accomplish more, when you do more, that is what makes you better than those people. And it really wasn't about like being forgiven or being redeemed. It was about like kind of achievability and and accomplishment of the law that separated you. And so last week we talked about this contemporary battle um, uh, of shame in our confessions and what we need to see about ourselves from this passage and how easy it is. Uh, And when we feel, um, let's see, uh, when we feel like it's on us to get better, it's on us to improve, right? We, we should be getting better here, and it just, but it's still there and things keep getting revealed. And the idea that it's easy to just, you know what, eventually you just give up and you just keep that stuff hidden where it grows and it thrives in the darkness. And it just compiles because when we feel shame about not doing these things, then that compiles and then we act out in our shame and do things we shouldn't do that produces more shame. And it just, this snowball piles up And so the beauty of Jesus is we can confess over and over and over, and that is actually fighting sin. What is not fighting sin is, I will never, never do that again. And then when you do it again, you don't say that anymore because you just made this declaration, and so a week later, and then sin's got you. To fight sin is to confess over and over. And yes, practice new things, which we're going to look at today. Um, So this week we're going to approach from the perspective less about uh, us and more about what is being made known about God in these passages and exposing some of the false teachings that have been made uh, around Ephesus, uh, in the church at Ephesus, all the way to the church in St. Charles. Uh, So this is critical because if we are going to trust this God, if we're going to actually come before him and confess our shame, uh, we need to know who he is. Can we trust him? Can we really know him? How do we know that we can bring our shame out from the darkness and into the light? Now, usually I would say let's preach on the character of God before we preach on how we can respond to them the only I did this the other way around for for a couple reasons one was just because uh, but then the other reason was um, we have a different philosophy in our day than they did in the church of Ephesus in the ancient days you started with the presumption that there is a deity there is there is a deity out there and it was the matter of which deity is more powerful in our day We kind of still start with the presumption that there is a deity, but that presumption is we are that deity. We are the ones that are are, are the arbiters of all truth and meaning and and existence. And listen, this is not to make you feel shame. This is the air that we breathe. This is post-post-modern, whichever worldview we're in right now, this this is what that is. We start with the presumption that all things are determined by me. I am the one that knows all things, and, and therefore I'm the one that determines what feels good, what's right, what's not right. And so I wouldn't, wanted to spend just a minute kind of dismantling that God before we then look at the character of this God as we come before him. All right? So, um, nevertheless, here we are. First thing of first importance that John wants to know, the message that he is conveying to the church in Ephesus and therefore to us about God is and his nature is this. God is light. God is light. Now, all throughout history, uh, light is not a, an uncommon metaphor. It's used, it's not distinctly Christian, it's used in, in many other uh, religious examples, um, multiple worldviews. Uh, it is something that is recorded in John's Gospel that Jesus actually says about himself, uh, one thing that you'll notice in the book of John is that John does not spend a lot of time, like, uh, he uses Jesus and God almost interchangeably, uh, which which is it, it actually says a lot. And this is what he said. God is light. And there's a stark contrast between God and then what is not God. Between what is good and what is evil, it is as stark a, a, of a difference as darkness and Light, and there's a lot of implications with the metaphor light. So light is the source of direction. It is illumination. Um, when I was a kid, uh, and some of you, this is going to bring back flashbacks, um, and hopefully it's not triggering for anybody. But when I was a kid, we used to go to this camp down the lake of the Ozarks called Windermere. Anybody? Okay. All right. Some good Baptist folk in here. Uh, we used to go to this uh, camp called Windermere, and uh, this is where it's going to like totally flashback. In this camp, in this campment, there was a cave. All right. Now, um, when I was younger, we never went like during the summer when all the programs were running and everything was open and you could, you know, and and they had guided tours of whatever and whatever. I was always there like on a special weekend or for Bible drill. Uh, or for any of those things, and we would go down, and you had to, they had a sign posted of when the lights were on for the cave, but I never, when I was a kid, I never saw the lights on for the cave. And so what we would have to do is you would have to sneak out of your cabin, or just during free time in general, and um, you would have to grab a flashlight. Now, let me explain what that is. this is back in the day when a flashlight and a phone had nothing in common, okay? Um, there were no bars over the cave, so that was a reality. Like you could go in unhindered into the cave and you had to take a flashlight. And this is what flashlights were back in the day. They, they were contained in this either plastic or steel uh, cylinder. And they took anywhere from two to four batteries that weighed about five pounds each and the light they gave off was barely better than darkness, right? It was, like, it was like your phone on dim. And then the way you reboot a flashlight is you just beat the tar out of it until the light comes back on. And so this is how we would enter that cave. And um, we would walk slowly. Uh, you had to plan ahead because nobody had just like flashlights on them um, so you had to plan ahead before you went down. And this is how we would go into the cave. And we would shine this in front of us. And you had to walk very slowly. And you could hear drips. And there was a, it was slippery. Um, there was kind of a creek every once in a while that ran through the middle of it. Uh, and lots of places to trip. You know, the floor is not nice and level. It's going up like this. There was a couple of twists and turns in there, not too much, um, but I mean, we didn't know how long it went. We didn't know how far back it went. It felt like we were back in at least two miles, um, though it wasn't, I'll get to that. And we like, were there bats in there? Were there bears in here? And we didn't know, like the further back you get, we had seen enough 80s movies uh, that we knew that this would not turn out well. And so we never, like we would go back, it was like the dare of how far back we could go, and we're like, we better get back. We don't know if we followed the right trail. We could get lost. You have to call the Hardy Boys in and we never knew. Several years later, I was in high school or, or college. I don't remember, it all blends together. Uh, and I went back to the camp and this was during the summer, uh, summertime. And I went back as a helper and uh, the cave was there. And sure enough, the lights were on. Like they just had it lined with lights. And I was like, all right. And I walked in, I was like, this is neat. And, I mean, it was was a little bit further from one end of the room to the other end of the room. And then you go up and around this little turn, over this little hill, and there's a pond, and and that's it. And I was like, that's it? Okay. This isn't nearly as scary. This is not two miles long, that's for sure. Uh, And when the lights were on, it, it wasn't scary at all. It changed everything. It changed everything. Um, God is light. He illuminates the world around us. And here's what I mean by that. He is the one that is or gives meaning and purpose. He is the one that designed the world to be. And therefore, he is the one by whom we have direction in what is important, in how we ought to live, in where we ought to go and what we ought to do. This is, we talked about this, um, I don't know, at some point, this is the nature of the law, right? The law is not just this list of arbitrary rules that God gives to go, uh, you could have fun doing that, so I'm gonna make that illegal. Uh, That God is not like this cosmic killjoy. We've talked about this before. The nature of sin is one that if God were to say in the commandments, ice cream is good for you, thou shalt have ice cream at every meal, Our response, the nature of sin is every meal. I have to eat ice cream. God is not the cosmic killjoy. Our hearts are turned against Him. What the law does is it reveals the character and the nature of God, who He is. It is light. It shows us how he designed the world to be and how we ought to be in it. It shows us what is important. It shows us the obstacles, where to step and where not to step. And, and what we see, even from the beginning, even in Genesis one, is that the way that the world is supposed to operate, which this is how we understand the law, is not just these arbitrary rules of what we do and don't do. That is simply religion. The way God designed us to be is relationship, to walk with him. Not simply do these things and don't do these things, but to actually walk with him, to abide in him, to delight in him, to walk with him in the cool of the morning. That is what we are designed to do. And so the essence of obedience is not simply following certain rules, but the essence of obedience of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Uh, What is at the heart of both creation and salvation is to actually be in relationship with God and with one another. To be reconciled to relationship. And So God is light. He is the only way that anything makes sense in this world. He is the lens through which we see meaning and purpose and life. To walk in the light is not simply to follow the rules. To walk in the light is beyond that. It is to walk in relationship with God. Now, here's what's crazy. We throw that word around. We need to be in relationship with God. God wants to have a relationship with us. Um, We we kind of, we, we say that so easily. God desires to have a relationship but here's what we need to know, that is that is so unusual, historically. We say it because it's been around for a while, but in time and history, that's crazy. In any other religion, that's crazy. The idea that this supreme being wants to have a relationship. Um, I had coffee with, uh, with my rabbi friend this past week, and uh, it had been a long time, so it was really good to catch up. And it doesn't take much for us to get into, uh, like, really good discussion. And so we were talking through the uniqueness of how each of us, how between, uh, between Christians and Jews, how we interpret Scripture, how we see Scripture, um, and the views of God we have and where they differ. Uh, and one of the things that we were talking about, she was mentioning how— um, uh, so one, one of the things that she told me, this was quite a while ago, is is that uh, for Jews, arguing is kind of a virtue. And I was like, oh my gosh, uh, the Old Testament makes so much more sense right now. Like that, that yes, okay, I get it. Uh, but then what she says is, you know, you see it all throughout Scripture, and what you see is that God, I'm going to use a big word here that she used, anthropomorphizes, right? Uh, or another word you could use there is pixars uh, takes on human characteristics all throughout the hebrew scriptures Uh, you see god portrayed as a husband you see god portrayed in wrestling with jacob you see god portrayed uh, as as a human to demonstrate because what she says is it's cool the way that god is genuinely in this relationship that God is actually a part of this relationship. He's not just up there as the divine puppet master pulling the strings. He's, he's a part of it. And, and she, she just went at it again. Like you can see the way he, he presents himself. Uh, that and, But she went a little bit further in the way that God changes. Sometimes he relents. Sometimes there's something that he doesn't destroy because he got argued with. And, uh, and, and just this virtue of not taking anything. But God, if God's really in this relationship, then we... We argue with him and we can see the way that we want things to be. And so I, I told her there's a little bit of a tension in that for me. Because uh, I agree um, that God is genuinely in this relationship with his people. And yet God is still divine and sovereign and holy over all things. So there, there is a little bit of a, of a tension in that. Um, and... Uh, And and we talked about the uniqueness of this God as compared to any other God. There were concepts of of, of gods in human form in the ancient world. The Pharaoh. The Emperor. Those were gods in human forms. Those were not gods that you had relationships with. Those were gods that you feared and promised loyalty to avoid destruction. So... It was a really good conversation. And not wanting to be rude uh, to my friend, I was able to tell her though, that we have a pretty big concept of the anthropomorphization of God. Um, we, we, and, and she immediately smiled and rolled her eyes. We have like, we have a whole concept of God presenting himself as human. And she's like, and I got her, I got her. And she knew I got her right off the bat. It was great. The whole essence of Christianity is exactly what she was saying. God has become man because he is genuinely in this relationship. And he took on the form of a servant becoming the light of the world that had come into the world. That we were not left to ourselves to find God, but that God himself Switched on the lights to the cave. Here I am. I'm coming after you. We were no longer in darkness. And to follow him, as John records Jesus' own words in John eight twelve in his gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me does not walk in darkness. God is light. He illumines the world. He is the source of how things ought to be. When the cave was dark, you walk timidly. You walk scared. You want to avoid the puddles. You don't want to slip. You don't want to walk into walls. Uh, and, but when the lights were on, you, you can see. You know where to go and where not to go. You know what it is to follow in, in, and to walk in on, on solid ground. God is light. He illumines the world. He is the way the world ought to be, and to follow him is to have relationship and fellowship. We talk about that word again, commonality, communion. To have fellowship with him is to walk in that light. And again, John's going to go into this in the next chapter here. Um, that, is not simply, that is not simply morality. It is, it is morality, but it's so far beyond that. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it is to walk in the light and to walk in obedience, to have fellowship with God and with each other. Um, The light that illuminates the darkness is good. It helps us see the dangers. It helps us see the way the world ought to be, the things that might hurt or destroy us. It shows us the way to go. uh, But the light that illumines the world can also be scary because it also illuminates us. Uh, When I was in high school, a few friends um, from high school and some friends from band camp, we were all all gonna drive up and meet at Six Flags. And these were all people that were uh, like above me in social order. It didn't take much to be above me in social order in in high school, but I'm I'm not sure how I got the invite um, to go to this day at Six Flags, but somehow I did, and um, and so like these were people I wanted to impress deeply, uh, and I remember I wore a black shirt and khaki shorts, and I'll tell you why I remember that in a second. Uh, we went on the ride that's been like 20 different rides at Six Flags. If you're familiar with it, I think now it's either it's like Scooby-Doo or Justice League or whatever. It it used to be I it used to be like a time machine or, a, or the Tunnel of Love or whatever that had like the robots that with the very, you know, this was the scary or the inviting. No, anybody? Yeah. All right. Um, and so in all the iterations of that ride, one thing has remained consistent. When you come around that last corner, right before you come back out of the tunnel, they have the giant black lights. Everybody remember that? Uh, they have black lights. It makes everything look cool. Unless you are wearing a black shirt where you wiped like Frito chips or something that you didn't think would ever show up until a black light hits it. I felt the pain. Mitch Hedberg, comedian, talks about it's always cool when you go to a place with a black light. It makes everybody look cool except for me because I thought the mustard stain had come out right? The black light reveals what was hidden. And now all of these people I was trying to impress saw that I was just a slob. This is how I, this is how I took care of the chip residue. It was a nightmare. Um, the false, uh, when, when light illuminates everything, it illuminates us as well. It reveals the parts of us that we may feel shame about, the parts that we want to keep hidden, uh, either in rebellion or pride. And the false teachers uh, in Ephesus, this is where we had already gone, they fell to one of two sides. They either had minimized sin by the idea that everything is spiritual or they had elevated themselves by making two classes of people. Those who follow the law and do righteous and then sinners who don't follow the law. And therefore, we were righteous because we follow the law and we look down on sinners. And the only way for a sinner to become righteous was to, to assimilate, to become like these people. Um, I, uh, going, going back to, this was not my rabbi friend that said this, but this is another one, uh, during the pandemic, I, I thought it was pretty clever to bring in a contemporary uh, uh, illustration here that I think you'll get. Um, uh, this rabbi said that the pandemic has kind of turned us all Jewish uh, because uh, not for health reasons, but that our righteousness is, has become just how many of the restrictions that we are following, Right? If you want to be really righteous, you'll sleep with a mask on. And I can feel it. I can feel it. The nose thing gets me to this day. The nose thing still gets me. If it's, that's, that's right, son. Um, the nose thing gets me. I that, like to have it over your nose. But, but it's not necessarily for health reasons or anything like that, but it's the measures of righteousness. Just how many of the, of the laws do you follow? Up? And then, of course, the sinners are like, I don't care about anything. I'm just going to do what I want. And, and this, like he said, it's turned us all Jewish, which I thought was brilliant insight. What John combats on both sides of these is that the light reveals everything, especially, especially the ones that look clean on the outside. And if we say that we are walking in the light, but we are finding ways to do whatever we want, or we are living self-righteous and living off our own cleanliness and just how good we are, we're not actually walking in the light because the light is going to expose that. And that will need to be dealt with. Everyone, everyone has mustard stains. God is light, He is pure, He is perfect and holy and just, and He alone judges rightly, not us. He alone reveals, He alone is the light of the world. And this is who God is. And to presume that we could ever stand in his place on either side, either declaring ourselves innocent or declaring ourselves more righteous, the idea that we could stand in his place is foolish. To speak on his behalf is daunting. That we approach him with humility and say, I don't deserve, I don't deserve to be up here. To convey the word of the Lord uh, is, is daunting. Because... His followers, Jesus says, you will be light in a dark and twisted generation. You will be a city on the hill. And so to stand in the presence of this great light exposes all of our dirt and our filth. Isaiah, when he stands in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. God's glory is so bright that it melts anything not built to stand in his presence. And so when you think about it, there's an incredible paradox in this God. Again, this is a God that we are familiar with in our day. But throughout history, the paradox of this God is is mind-blowing. The God who has made himself known. As humans, then, when God gets to be mind-blowing, we will try to pin him down on our side. We'll try to get him under our understanding, our ability to comprehend. The false teachings that were happening then and that happen now are ways that we take the gospel that is absolutely radical, and then we try to fit it in a way that we can understand that we really kind of get to take back over the reins. Right? The religious way of not needing Jesus is if I'm good enough. Again, remember the default view of God that we often have. God takes good people to heaven and sends bad people to hell. And we want to have the part in determining who's good and who's bad. And so we kind of pull it back under the way that, uh, under our traditions. Something that gives us uh, a measure of power and authority that we really don't have to fully trust God. And so here we have light that what we see through scripture both provides direction and hope. Um and yet is also brighter than the sun in all of its glory and can actually be blinding. How do we reconcile this light, this paradox? Here's what makes God so utterly amazing and unlike any other. The one who exposes our sin and our shame is the same one that covers our sin and our shame. That's an incredible paradox. It's glorious. The one who blinds us with his glory is the same one who gives us eyes to see. This is how John says it. Listen to this sentence. Don't listen to this sentence like you've heard it a billion times. Listen to what John says. If you confess your sin, this God who is light is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes I think it's 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 easier to understand that when we when we bring out what it doesn't say, it doesn't say if we compensate for our sin we can overcome. It doesn't say as long as you're not as bad as those people, you'll be forgiven. Or if we keep trying as hard as we can. It especially doesn't say if you are a good person, God will forgive you of your sin. John starts this passage, this particular passage, with the statement, God is. God is light. And then he concludes the statement with, if we confess our sins that are exposed in his light, he is faithful and just. Not to give us a second chance to get it together, but to actually forgive us and cleanse us. What I love about this, it doesn't say that God is faithful and loving. It says that God is faithful and just. God holds himself accountable to his commitment. He is just. This is part of his justice that he has declared. His love for us is defined by his faithfulness and his justice. His justice makes right what we cannot make right. And his justice cleanses what we can't cleanse. But this is a God of his word. He is accountable to the promises that he has made, and what we see all throughout his word and all throughout history is never the greatness of our faithfulness, but his. When our oldest daughter was born, we're gonna finish here and we're gonna do a practice together. Uh, when my oldest daughter was born, she was, uh, she was six, me- six weeks premature, she was tiny, uh, and of course we had no idea what we were doing as, as parents. Uh, the first few nights she had to spend in the NICU, and uh, they could, so they could keep an eye on her lungs, but also she had uh, she was jaundiced, so they put her in this little like um, this little uh, like baby tanning bed, right? Um, and they uh, they had little goggles that they put over her eyes, and it was this bright blue light. And we walked in, and she just like. And the the NICU, the nurses in the NICU called her the Bahama Mama. Uh, She got under that blue light and just, like, basked in it. And it was glorious and it was warm. And this is our daughter who still turns on her heater in the summer down in her room. Not without sin, obviously. But for those who live, here's Here's the thing. For those of us who live under the premise that God takes good people to heaven heaven and sends bad people to hell, um, the light is going to be a very intimidating place because it's going to reveal a lot. It's going to send us back to hiding in the darkness. But to know the character of God as revealed in Jesus, that he is faithful and just to forgive to cleanse us through the blood of Jesus, then the light becomes a warm, it can, it can become a warm and enveloping place to bask where our sin and shame can actually be met and dealt with, where we can experience the warmth of God's love that does not send us back into hiding but calls us more and more into the light where we can stretch out our arms and experience the true freedom that comes to be able to walk fully exposed and yet not condemned. So this is something we need to practice. This is a confession. We need, John says that if we, if we say one thing and do another, we don't practice the truth. Um, we need to practice the truth. This is not something you do by default. This is something we need to practice. So this morning, we're going to practice together this liturgy of confession. This is taken from um, the Book of Common Prayer. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to do this here, uh, and then we're going to go from here into communion. During communion, there's a couple stools in the back, I think, that have some of these pieces of paper on it. And I, it's a PDF, and I'm sorry, it's small. Uh, Um, But if you, our phones also have magnifying glasses on them. Did you know that? I found that out. Um, uh, But if you need, if there's something specific that you need to do, if there's something specific that you need to confess, and and listen, we're Protestant, all right? Just take that in. We are fully Protestant. But if you need to stand before something, sometimes I think we need to hear, sometimes I think as Protestants we don't do a good job of actually hearing from God, you're forgiven. You're forgiven be be forgiven. Um, and so if there's something that you just need to hear that this morning, we're gonna read this together corporately, but then during communion, if there's something you need to do, I'm gonna have elders, uh, a couple of the elders and wives, they'll just be stationed at random places. It'll be chaos, lots of stuff going on. If you just need to walk through this liturgy, this is not necessarily a time of counseling if you want to talk more about something, but if you just need to confess something and hear from God, Be forgiven you can do that. So we're going to do this corporately together and then during communion you can grab a sheet of you can grab a sheet of paper if you want to do that privately as well. So we have this up. I'm going to have you read the underlined portions. From 1 Timothy chapter 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Okay, pause for just a second. We've got another line here. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you read this, and we're going to take a couple of minutes, and, and you can do this quietly. <laughs> um, I want you to think, what do you need to confess? Daily things, multiple things, being honest before God. This is a practice that we don't practice enough. And so you're going to have just a minute here in the underlying portion to confess so let's read this together and then you'll have, you'll, we'll have a few minutes of silence. I confess to God and to you that I have sinned by my own fault in thought, word, and deed in things done and left undone especially, take a few minutes. gonna pick back up here to continue reading. That is wrong. I need God's forgiveness and absolution. Church, follower of Jesus, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord has put away all of your sin. Thanks be to God. And now we can go in peace and pray also for me, a sinner. Let's pray. Jesus, what you reveal about the God of the universe is, is mind-boggling. That, that he is both Almighty, powerful, ruler over the earth, bigger than the mountains and the seas, holds the atmosphere together by whom, for whom all things are made. Cosmic authority, power over mankind, and yet desires that we would know him and be in relationship that in Jesus you made yourself nothing, becoming, taking on the form of a servant, becoming homeless, becoming pitiable, dwelling among us, jealous for our attention and our affection, compassionate, merciful. You are both of these things. And so I pray this morning that we would, as the light, maybe it exposes us. And, and I don't know, maybe we need to remember or realize one of the elements of, the, of, the, of your character. That you are big and mighty and powerful and that we should stand in awe of you. And yet, you have made yourself known and you are genuinely in this relationship. You became man. And so the light is both intimidating and freeing. So I pray this morning that we would take you up on your promise that you hold yourself accountable to, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this by no means puts us above anyone but it puts us in awe of your majesty and your mercy. So God, I pray that you would make yourself known in this time. Help us to have humble hearts before you as we come forward and take uh, communion, the meal that you have given to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net. dot net.